You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. On today's episode, Adam and I were joined by Mac Martinez and Krista Holland. Mac and Krista are both managers here at Embark, and they sat down with us to discuss the differences between a business combination and an asset acquisition. We actually have a separate episode where we talk about the nuts and bolts of business combination accounting. So this one is primarily focused on the differences and how you would go about determining which guidance the transaction falls under with a little more focus on the asset acquisition side. While these concepts might sound pretty similar, there's plenty of differences to discuss and we'll cover as much as we can. We hope you enjoyed the episode and learned something new. All right, this is Sarah Cage, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's National Quality Leader. And we also have Mac Martinez and Krista Holland in the house. They're here to provide some practical insight from their own experience as we dive into the difference between an asset acquisition and a business combination. So as a company enters into any type of transaction to acquire, this distinction is going to be super important. So we're going to dive into all that. Uh, Adam, will you kick us off? with um, knowing we've we've covered this in previous podcasts, the acquisition side for business combinations, uh, but can you set the stage about what exactly an asset acquisition is? Yeah, yeah, so an asset acquisition basically in its simplest terms is the acquisition of assets. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And in some cases that could include liabilities as well um, that do not constitute a business under US GAAP. So US GAAP provides some parameters and definitions for what what constitutes a business. So it's a transaction that doesn't meet those requirements. Um, ASC 805 has a subsection, 80550, that does provide some of the guidance for how you would account for an asset acquisition. So that's, that's the... 30,000 foot view of what an asset acquisition would be. And if you want to know more about business combinations, go listen to that episode. But we're going to talk more about the distinction here. So Adam, could you tell us how an asset acquisition is a little different from a business combination? Yeah, sure. So um, it is a real critical kind of fork in the road, You know, making sure that you are heading down the right path, whether or not your transaction is an asset acquisition or mm-hmm. a business combination. And that's that's primarily because the accounting frameworks that are used are completely different. So an asset acquisition follows what's known as like a cost accumulation model, where you know the cost used to pay for that for the assets you acquire get allocated to all those different assets, mm-hmm. um, and it, you know it's based on cost itself. Whereas a business combination really follows a fair value model, mm-hmm. where most items are accounted for at fair value, and any excess you know, consideration you pay will ultimately usually result in some type of goodwill. Um, so it is important that you kind of know which avenue you're going down because you are, you know, accounting for it in very different ways. Okay, that makes sense. And we'll probably talk through that accounting more throughout the podcast. But Mac, could you give us an overview of where to start if you're trying to find the distinction between an asset acquisition or a business combination? For sure. So the first step would be, you know, taking a look at the guidance at ASC 805, you know, to determine whether, you know, acquired set of asset represents a business or not. Um, so historically, whenever you're evaluating uh, a transaction, you know, you apply the traditional input processes and outputs or, you know, ability to create outputs frame, framework that the FASB has put in place. Um, but as part of the, the FASB's long-term business combination technical project, um, they amended that definition back in 2017 um, through the issuance of AS, ASU 2017-01 in phase one. So those amendments introduced the, the screen test. 
So that must be applied and requires an entity to determine substantially all the fair value of the gross assets acquired or concentrated in a single asset or a single subset of assets mm-hmm. or a similar group of assets, I guess. So if that's the case, then the acquired set is an a- asset acquisition and you don't have to further assess the transaction or the de- definition of a business combination. So our favorite little FASB quote is substantially all. Could you dig in a little more to what they mean by that? Sure. Um, so caveat here, there's there's no real like bright lines. The FASB doesn't, you know, specifically yep. define Shine it. Shine away from that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in practice, generally around 90% is presumed to mean substantially all. Quantitatively, if there's kind of uncertainty about whether a single asset or group of similar assets represents substantially all. So for example, let's assume an asset makes up 80% of the value. Additional factors uh, should be considered. So like, are there other assets included in the set that are complementary to the single asset or group of similar assets? Or are there distinct types on their own? Is there a presence of goodwill? That's usually an indicator of a business. Or um, if the acquired set operates independently, you know, an acquired set of assets is, is an operation or a division. Um, so it's not, it's not necessarily like a checklist, but it just kind of generally represents indicators uh, the set is more like a business and wouldn't meet the screen test. So it's kind of like looking at the set of facts as a whole, right? Instead of, you know, just going through like a checklist. Yeah. So you mentioned the screen test. What's kind of the in- intent behind creating a screen test? So the screen test was created um, really to help simplify uh, some of the burden of having to ter- determine whether a certain transaction is an asset acquisition or a business combination, particularly in certain industries like real estate. As Adam mentioned, as the accounting is really different between business combination or asset acquisition, um, it's really just to kind of try to help simplify that de- that determination and to make sure that it's applied correctly. That makes sense. They don't want to do too much work, right? Everybody right. likes to save workload. Exactly. Krista, in your experience, what are some common challenges that we see companies have in applying the screen test? Uh, Some of the common areas I've seen are determining what is considered a group of similar assets and determining fair value of gross assets acquired. Yeah, that sounds pretty challenging. Let's look at each of those uh, one at a time. How does an entity figure out if an acquired asset is part of a similar uh, group and how do they apply that substantially all tests? Entities should consider the nature of the assets and the risks associated with managing and creating outputs when determining if the assets should be grouped as similar. Uh, If the risks are not similar, the assets cannot be combined for the screen test. ASC 805 provides examples of assets that should not be considered similar and combined as a group for applying the screen test. These include things like a tangible asset and an intangible asset, intangible assets across different classes of intangibles like customer relationships and technology, a financial and non-financial asset, different major classes of financial assets like AR versus equity securities, and different major classes of tangible assets like inventory versus fixed assets. This will require some judgment and vary based on facts and circumstances. Uh, I will caveat that even for a single asset used in the screen test, there can be instances where assets are combined into one single asset. Examples of this would include a tangible asset attached to another tangible asset, including instances where an intangible asset represents the right to use a tangible asset, such as a building with a ground lease. To be attached, it cannot be removed without incurring significant costs, uh, like land and building would be, so in this instance, land and building would be combined into a single asset. Yeah, because you're not going to go in and lift the building off the land, right? Right. (laughs) Uh, Another example is in-place lease intangibles and related lease assets. Those two would be considered a single asset as well. This is different from the group of similar assets we previously discussed where these assets are considered more complementary to each other and should be viewed holistically. 
That makes sense. You know, you, tangible asset, intangible asset, those don't sound similar to me. They sound pretty opposite. Yeah. And then those package deals. So how does an entity come up with the gross assets acquired? Does everything get included here or are there certain things that should be excluded? This will include all of the assets acquired in the transaction with limited exceptions. This total should also include any consideration transferred in excess of the fair value of the net assets acquired. So what would otherwise be considered goodwill in a business combination. Mm -hmm. However, certain gross assets acquired are excluded, including cash and cash equivalents, deferred tax assets, and goodwill resulting from the effects of deferred tax assets. I like the sound of that because I do not like deferred tax asset accounting. <laughs> I feel like that's like a terrible word. It's, it's some tough stuff. <laughs> These items are excluded as the FASB did not believe the tax form of the transaction and whether cash and cash equivalents were included should affect the determination of whether the set is a business. Yep. Keep in mind, the fair value of gross assets acquired is not necessarily the same as the consideration transferred. This may be caused, for example, by liabilities assumed, which are factored into the determination of purchase price, but excluded from the gross assets in the denominator of the screen test. The guidance does not address how to treat a bar bargain purchase option uh, gain in applying the screen. In practice, while not always common, a bargain purchase gain is excluded from the denominator of gross assets acquired, similar to liabilities assumed. An entity may not need additional information in all transactions to evaluate whether the threshold is met because it would need most of the information required, like the fair value assessment, for such an analysis, regardless of whether the asset set is a business or a group of assets. That is, in an acquisition of a group of assets that does not constitute a business, an entity must determine the fair value of all the assets acquired to allocate consideration transferred to those assets on a relative fair value basis in accordance with ASC 805-50-30-3. Did you have that memorized? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a good point to actually bring up is that I think a lot of people think an asset acquisition is always going to be less work from a valuation perspective, and that's yeah. not always the case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're generally going to need a valuation done regardless of whether it's an asset acquisition or a business combination. It's just how that information is used with the subsequent accounting. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I feel like you've done a lot of that purchase price accounting acquisition mm -hmm. stuff. Mac, what if a company thinks the answer to the screen test is blatantly obvious? Do they have to go through the entire exercise evaluating it or can they skip it? So the screen test isn't optional, but the guidance does not require a quantitative evaluation whether the threshold is met. So for example, the assessment could be qualitative if the entity concludes that, you know, all the fair value is assigned to one element of the set. You know, for so just to give an example, assume a company acquires a license for a drug candidate and an at market lease contract. If the lease contract is qualitatively determined to have little or no fair value, then based on the significance of the license, it's clear that the threshold is met, asset acquisition. Contrast if an entity concludes that there's clearly significant value in assets that are not similar, uh, the entity may be able to qualitatively determine that the threshold is not met. You know, keeping with a similar example, uh, assume an acquired set includes multiple licenses for very different drug types and candidates. Uh, if each license were to have more than an insignificant fair value, then the entity could qualitatively determine that you know, substantially all threshold for the screen test is not met, kind of moving towards the business combination, have to keep going down the screen test. So if the screen test isn't met, do we have to go back to the concepts of whether the transaction meets the definition of a business? 
And if so, can you give us a little recap of how that all works? Sure. So even if the initial screen te test isn't met, you could still end up concluding the transaction is an asset acquisition uh, if all the required elements of a business are not met as outlined in ASC 805. ASC 805 states that a business is an integrated set of assets and activities that is capable of being conducted and managed for the purposes of providing a return to investors or other owners, members, or participants. So business typically has inputs, processes, and outputs. They're used to generate a return to investors. However, outputs are technically not actually required for, for a set to be a business. The evaluation of whether outputs exist in the acquired set is an important step. The guidance defines an output as the result of inputs and processes applied to those inputs that provide goods or services to customers, investment income, such as dividends or interest or other revenues. So if outputs are present, the set must include an acquired sustainable process. If outputs are not present, the set must include an organized workforce who are capable of performing a substantive process by having a necessary experience and skills. So if those, those elements are not present, the acquired set would be an asset acquisition. So, you know, technically outputs aren't required, but like, quote unquote, the ability to create outputs is required. Okay. So we go through all of that work. We do all these tests. Let's say we land at an asset acquisition. How does a company recognize and measure an asset acquisition if that's where we land? Crystal, you take this one. This follows a cost accumulation model. In other words, assets acquired and any liabilities assumed are recognized at cost, which is the consideration the acquirer transfers to the seller on the acquisition date. Costs could include any of the following. Cash consideration paid, non-cash consideration paid, direct uh, acquisition costs incurred, contingent consideration, previously held interest, or non-controlling interest. For asset acquisitions in which some or all of the consideration transferred consists of non-cash assets, liabilities incurred to the seller, or equity interest issued to the seller, entities should first determine whether the transaction is with, within the scope of other U.S. GAAP. The guidance suggests ASC 845 and ASC 610-20 as examples of other U.S. GAAP that may apply to these transactions. Additionally, Reporting entities may also need to consider whether ASC 718 applies to asset acquisitions involving equity interests issued to the seller. The cost of the acquisition is then allocated to the assets acquired based on their relative fair values. An asset's acquisition cost or the consideration transferred by the acquiring entity is assumed to be equal to the fair value of the net assets acquired unless contrary evidence exists. Okay, so how does the cost allocation process work? Any key reminders here? Uh, as we mentioned before, after the cost of a group of assets in an asset acquisition is determined, it is allocated to the assets acquired based on their relative fair values. Uh, keep in mind, this allocation method could result in the cost of the asset acquisition exceeding the fair value of the acquired asset or the cost of the asset acquisition being less than the fair value of the acquired asset. If significant differences between the cost of an asset acquisition and the fair value of the assets acquired and liabilities assumed exists, it could be evident to suggest that not all assets were acquired and liabilities assumed have been recognized or that there are transactions that should be recognized separate from the asset acquisition. Judgment is required to evaluate. It's like when I'm putting together furniture and like it's not fitting, it means that I've probably missed something. Yeah, I missed a step. <laughs> missing, a, missing a part. Or, yeah. yeah, I had that experience recently. I was putting together a basketball goal and the thing wouldn't lift and it was because we'd missed a step and we didn't put the little spacers in. So if you, if, you, if your entry doesn't balance, you maybe miss something. Smaller hoops easier to dunk on. Yeah. 
In many cases, the cost of the acquisition may still exceed the fair value of the individual assets acquired and liabilities assumed. This may be due to synergies existing among the acquired assets. As an asset acquisition does not result in the recognition of any goodwill, any excess cost over the fair value is still required to be allocated to the acquired assets on a relative fair value basis. However, entities should keep in mind any assets in the acquired set that may be subject to ongoing fair value impairment testing as any excess consideration should generally not be allocated to them on a relative fair value basis or they risk an immediate impairment. Those assets should not be allocated any consideration in excess of their fair value on the asset acquisition date. Let's provide an example to help illustrate this last point. Assume that a company entered into an asset acquisition and paid $20 million in cash. The fair value of the asset acquired on the acquisition date consisted of the following. Property plants and equipment of $12 million, inventory of $4 million, and indefinite live intangible assets of $3 million. So the total fair value of the assets acquired would be $19 million. In this example, because the cost of the assets exceeds its fair value, the excess must still be allocated to the acquired assets. However, the indefinite live intangible asset should not be allocated to an amount greater than its fair value of $3 million because it's subject to an annual recurring fair value impairment test and doing so could result in an immediate impairment. Instead, the allocation would work by taking the remaining $17 million in consideration, so $20 million less th the $3 million for the indefinite lived asset, and al allocate it on a relative fair value basis between the PPE and the inventory. Okay, I like the example. That's really helpful. So we've touched on this at a high level, the difference between asset acquisition and business combinations, but are there any specific accounting differences that we should maybe highlight to our listeners? Adam, will you take this one? Yeah, so I've got a list, I guess, of the more common ones that mm -hmm. I see people have questions on or that they're surprised by some of the accounting. And this is by like no means meant to be, you know, all encompassing. Mm -hmm. There's there's several others out there. So if you have more unique circumstances, I definitely recommend um, doing some of the research or reaching out to one of us um, and we can help direct you in the right in the right direction to make sure you're thinking about that correctly. But contingent considerations, a big area, leases, uh, transaction costs, mm -hmm. um, in-process R&D is kind of a unique one, but the accounting outcomes kind of surprising to a lot of people there. So I always like to throw that one in. Uh, measurement periods and then kind of like the reporting side, like what kind of disclosures are needed. So those are kind of my top, I guess, six items. Um, and we can talk through each of those as you see fit. Yeah, you, you know I don't let you off with just a list. You got to dig into each one of those. Let's let's start with uh, contingent consideration. Yeah, so contingent consideration, you know, I think when we were talking through what gets um, included into the cost, you know, contingent consideration could be one of those items. Um, the way it works for an asset acquisition, it, it kind of mirrors the guidance that you see in ASC 450. So it's whether it's probable and estimatable. So trying to you know, think about how much should be recognized based on those criteria um, at the date of acquisition. And so that's what you would record. And then obviously subsequent to that, as you, you know, new facts or circumstances come about or you adjust that estimate, there's always the question of like, how would I handle this contingent consideration, you know, going down the road? It hasn't been settled yet, but now I either think more is going to be paid out or maybe less is going to be paid out. What do you do? The way the accounting works is that anytime there's a change in the um, initial consi contingent consideration, which would be capitalized, right? Mm -hmm. So it's all a cost accumulation model. So any contingent consideration just gets capitalized into the cost of the assets. Um, any changes to that is really just a change in the cost basis of those assets. So you are just changing that cost basis. 
Um, the big question that comes up is what do you do, you know, if that cost basis, let's say, is an adjustment to fixed assets, for example, um, what do you do with the depreciation expense that you were, you know, depreciating over, you know, an old cost basis? What do you do now that you've trued up that cost basis? And so generally there, you know, there is an explicit gap on this, but in practice, what's generally done is a cumulative catch-up entry. So any, you know, depreciation or amortization that you should have recorded had that been the cost basis originally, you would catch that up through a catch-up entry. Um, and this is different, obviously, from a business combination, which is why it's important that we distinguish between the two um, the two different models themselves, because in a business combination, you fair value uh, contingent consideration. Um, and then depending on the classification of that contingent consideration, so whether it's equity classified or liability classified, you may have to do subsequent remeasurements. So liability classified contingent consideration gets revalued every reporting period. Any changes in that run through earnings. So it's it's completely different because that one is obviously, you know, especially from like a, a liability perspective, is going to hit your P&L, whereas um, in an asset acquisition perspective, it's all being capitalized into cost and it comes through the P&L through your depreciation or amortization. Okay. What about with leases? So leases, there's a lot um, in here. <laughs> there always uh, is. Um, <laughs> you know, especially with like the new leasing guidance, which is where we'll focus most of this discussion. Um, and I'll, I'll talk more about on the lessee side. There are some some nuances on the lessor side. So definitely would suggest if you acquire, you know, if you acquire something that included um, leases where they were the lessor in, you know, definitely look at some of that guidance as well. But from a lessee perspective, there's a couple areas I like to focus on. One is classification. Mm -hmm. So normally... In a business combination, if you acquire a lease, you just keep the same classification of the acquiry, um, so you don't reassess that. In an asset acquisition, you actually do reassess the lease classification, so completely different frameworks there. So you would have to perform that classification test based on the information of that lease um, at the acquisition date. And then from a measurement perspective, um, there are some differences there as well for lessees. So the you know, both are going to view the acquired lease as a new lease. So they're going to measure the right of use asset lease liability, um, lease liability rather, um, based on the remaining lease payments as mm -hmm. if it was a new lease, you know, discount that back. Um, the big difference is whether or not there's any favorable or unfavorable intangibles associated with that lease. So, you know, if the lease is at, you know, below market or above market as far as lease rates or something, there could be an intangible asset associated with it. Right. And an asset acquisition, you have to account for that intangible separate from mm -hmm. your um, right of use asset, whereas in uh, a business combination, it would actually reduce the right of use asset or be an adjustment to the right of use asset, depending on whether it's favorable or unfavorable. So yeah. just a couple differences in how you account for right of use assets on that acquisition date. Sounds like we could do a whole podcast on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about transaction costs? We've kind of talked about this a little bit throughout the podcast, but what's maybe the main difference here? Yeah, so this one, I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward. Business combination, you generally are all you know, going to be expensing almost all those transaction type costs. You know, there's mm -hmm. some limited exceptions if you're paying on behalf of people, things like that. But generally, those are expensed, whereas in uh, an asset acquisition, it's a you know, it's a component of the acquisition itself. So those actually get allocated or capitalized and allocated to the assets. So, you know, that was one of the big reasons that um, when, you know, the FASB put into place kind of their 
definition of a business rework. Um, there was a lot of feedback, particularly like in the real estate industry, because there's a ton of costs that goes into, mm-hmm. right, trying to close real estate transactions. <laughs> yeah. And mm-hmm. so people were like, these are obviously like, we're just buying an asset here. We're not really buying a whole business. And so, you know, under the old definition of a business, a lot of times they were having a tough time kind of overcoming that hurdle to say it wasn't a business. And so they were having to expense all these costs and they weren't able to capitalize the cost. Um, You know, for those that are able to meet the definition of an asset acquisition, you know, through the screen test or failing that business definition, then, you know, those costs can then be capitalized into the transaction. And then, you know, obviously it looks better on your balance sheet. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so big difference there as well. Yeah. And I think the next on your list was in-process R&D, which isn't something that everybody deals with, but it's also one of those things that makes our brains hurt. So could you kind of hit the highlights on what's going on there? Yeah, so this is the one where I think like kind of shocks people. I mean, it's obviously more prevalent like in life sciences, you know, you're right. doing drug research or maybe some technology type companies are also doing some unique research and, and development type projects. Um, but depending on whether the transaction, you know, has some in-process research and development at the time you acquire, um, you know, whether it's business versus asset acquisition, the accounting is like completely different. So asset acquisitions generally will always expense any of that mm-hmm. in-progress research and development. So if you think about, you know, some of these pharmaceutical startup type companies, they may only have research and development. Right. Um, and so if that transaction ends up being like, we're going to acquire this, you know, this drug company, but it's determined to be an asset acquisition, like that research and development in most cases is always just going to be expense. So you really have nothing to like record in a lot of cases in those transactions. Um, there are limited exceptions. It's pretty rare um, that you could argue that the in-research um, or in-progress research and development um, may have an alternative future use that exists, um, in which case you could capitalize it, but that that's a, I guess that's a high hurdle to meet because basically what the guidance, you know, in practice came out saying is that if the use of that in-process research and development requires like further development, like it's not completely ready to go as it is, it's not considered to have an alternative use. So it's almost like mm-hmm. whatever you acquire, it has to be able to be used in its current state. It can't be like, you know, we're gonna take what's there and then continue to add on to it. That mm-hmm. would suggest that, you know, an asset doesn't exist and you've got to basically expense that. Um, on the flip side, if it's a business combination, um, you you would capitalize or, you know, generally you'd recognize an asset at fair value for that in research, in progress research and development. And it's usually an indefinite live asset um, that, you know, that sits on your books, but, you know, it's not something that hits your, hits your P&L. Man, they really like to have these things be treated differently. <laughs> All right, so the last two items on your list were measurement periods and disclosures. Could you talk a little bit about both of those? Yeah, so anyone that's been through, you know, a traditional business combination under AC805 is probably familiar with the concept of a measurement period, which mm-hmm. basically allows you up to a year from the acquisition date to finalize your uh, your purchase accounting. So gather your information, make adjustments, you know, fine tune things based on information that existed on the acquisition date. Um, and an asset acquisition, that doesn't exist. So you don't have the luxury of having a period of time to finalize that accounting. You have to get that, that ready the first time, ready to record. So there's no you know, looking back and trying to, to make adjustments there. Um, if there are changes to the asset acquisition accounting, it you know, has to be evaluated as like, are we correcting an error in the initial accounting and kind of going through that framework? So just something to keep in mind. 
Um, and then probably on the relief side, so something that's maybe a little bit easier on the asset acquisition side is disclosures. There really aren't any like mm -hmm. prescribed disclosures for an asset acquisition. Obviously, business combinations have a ton of robust disclosures that you have to include, a lot of details about the transaction, um, you know, purchase price allocations, you know, breakouts of different consideration, fair value type disclosures around that type of stuff. Um, asset acquisition accounting, there isn't any prescribed specific um, disclosures, but there could be disclosures that are required just by you know being in tandem with some of the types of assets acquired. So if you acquired an intangible, there's you know standard intangible disclosures you got to include mm -hmm. and things like that. So just kind of keeping in mind, like depending on the nature of what you acquired, you may have other areas of gap that have applicable disclosures, but there's nothing specific to like the transaction itself. Okay. Well, we covered just a few of the differences and it sounds like there's a lot. So given all of these differences and the nuances between these, is there any thought to try and bridge that gap between business combinations and asset acquisitions? Yeah, yeah, there is. So, you know, we've mentioned, you know, earlier at the top of the podcast about the definition of a business was just like phase one of the FASB's project. You know, they, they worked through phase two, which had to do with some of like derecognition type stuff of certain non-financial assets and, and things like that in ASC 610, but there's actually a phase three that's underway. And this is the part of the project that is looking at differences, like key differences in asset acquisition accounting versus business combination accounting and whether or not they could align some of those, um, you know, more closely together. Um, so that's something that's definitely in the works. Um, I think recently they kind of noted that they were gonna be looking at uh, contingent consideration, that in-progress research and development, and transaction costs, and whether they should be treated similarly. Mm -hmm. um, so there's more to come on that. They haven't really given you know a ton of indication like where they're going to land, but they they have kind of defined the scope of certain things they are looking at, and obviously other things could be added. But um, definitely something to kind of keep a pulse on, especially if you. You know, work for a company that makes a lot of transactions. You kind of have to go through this drill, you know, f pretty frequently. Just if there, mm -hmm. if there are going to be some, you know, wide sweeping changes, that you you kind of stay current on that stuff. So, and I'm sure if there's changes, we'll also probably have a we'll have a, a little chat about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll go through it all. Um, so, just to bring us all the way through the the process here, what about after the asset acquisition? Is there any guidance about subsequent measurement considerations? Yeah, not specific to like, you know, asset acquisitions. You know, if you think about like a business combination where you recorded goodwill, you know, subsequently, then you're like testing that goodwill for impairment. If you, you know, aren't a private company that elected an alternative. Um, but for asset acquisitions, there really isn't any like specific subsequent, you know, recognition or measurement guidance for asset acquisitions as a whole. Um, you basically are just going to follow whatever applicable gap you know, exist for those different assets or liabilities you brought onto your books through the transactions. So, you know, you got intangibles, for example, you know, you're gonna amortize your intangibles and mm -hmm. record that. But, you know, there's there's no there's no specific, you know, guidance that you have to follow after the fact. I like that. And I think that is plenty for today's discussion, unless y'all wanna go for another hour. I'm good. No, no, no. I, I think accounting is like medicine. It's best when taken in doses. Yes. Pause for laughter. They could see my script. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about this and um, or have any questions about today's discussion, please find Embark on LinkedIn. We'd love to connect, especially if you have suggestions for future podcast episodes. Uh, we'd love to hear what topics you want to know more about. 
Thank you, Mac and Krista, for joining Adam and I and for sharing your insights. And thank you for listening and following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.